Well, it is a great pleasure and privilege to speak at a conference associated with the name of Clive West. I'm here to speak on the death of evangelicalism, and I have four headings for those who are Nate takers. One, the history of evangelicalism. Two, the heart of evangelicalism. Three, the death of evangelicalism. And four, the future of evangelicalism. So we start with the history of evangelicalism and the beginning is found in Luke chapter 24. If you'd like to turn to the Bibles there, Luke chapter 24. I don't have a church Bible here and I've got the wrong translation. So thank you, brother. Luke 24. I think it's in your New Testament in your yes. Bibles, isn't yes, it? Yes, yes, yes. I'm yes, so yes. glad. That's good to know. Um, and it's when Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples and picking it up from, say, verse uh, uh, 44. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. And he told them, This is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Notice the three-phase view of human history that we have before us. The Old Testament prophesied what would be taking place, namely the sufferings of the Christ and his resurrection, and then the second phase is that very short but absolutely pivotal, essential phrase, that is, the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the third phase is world mission, proclaiming the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, proclaiming repentance and forgiveness to all nations in his name. Now, because history is but an introduction, I'm then going to jump from that moment in history to another moment in history, many years later, centuries later, when the gospel was rediscovered in Europe, when the moment called the Reformation, where once again the gospel was clearly articulated in the great phrase of justification by faith alone. It was in this context, the context of Reformation belief, that the next moment of history I want to draw your attention to and remind you of took place, namely in the 18th century with the Evangelical Awakening, where the Gospel was preached in particular across these British Isles. Now friends, it, if this was a history lecture, what I've just done is wholly unsatisfying. I understand that. But it's not a history lecture, that's not what I'm aiming to do. I'm just pointing a couple of the key highlights necessary to understand what we mean by evangelicalism. It was that gospel preaching in the 18th century in the understanding of the 16th century Reformation which was the fulfilment of what Jesus was on about when he rose from the dead and sent his apostles out. The Reformation taught us that by the grace of God we are justified simply by faith in the sacrificial death of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. The Evangelical Awakening took that as read and within that context taught the importance of being born again. That was the great, just as justification by faith alone was the Reformation motto, you must be born again, was the Evangelical Awakening motto. 
to personally engage in Christ's death for you. You needed regeneration to put your faith in the sacrificial death of the Lord Jesus Christ. From this sudden and extraordinary outpouring of gospel preaching came numerous conversions and the development of a historical movement called evangelicalism, indeed an ev a party called the Evangelical Party. The historian David Babington has famously described it as having four distinctive aspects. Conversionism, that is, that lives need to be changed. Activism, expressing the gospel in effort. Biblicism, that is a particular regard for the Bible. And crucicentrism, that is, stressing the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. However, one difference we must remember tonight is that I've got to keep reminding myself is that I'm an Australian, I'm not even that really, I'm a Sydney cider, and I don't necessarily understand Northern Ireland, but you are very clever and you can translate. I hope if you understand my accent. But you need to translate it into the Northern Ireland. If what they say is true and the cap fits, wear it. If it's not, well then you make the qualification that is necessary because I but visit you once or twice every 20 years for a week or so and so I know sweet bother all about you in that sense, right? However, we in Australia and I suspect you because you're part of Western civilization, are now living in post-cultural Christianity. Cultural Christianity is in the Western world dead. We're not living in a post-Christian world, we're living in a post-Christian cultural world. This does affect how evangelicalism now appears and how it now operates and will be important when we come later on to look at the future of evangelicalism. However, it's also important when it comes to defining what is evangelicalism. What is the true essence of it? What is the heart of evangelicalism? And so I've already moved to my second topic, but don't be, don't be rejoicing too fast. The first is the shortest. I've already moved to the second topic then, the heart of evangelicalism. Fundamentally, evangelicalism is not a historical movement. It's a gospel movement that has occurred in history. To describe it uh, and to define it historically is basically to misunderstand it. A historical description of what is evangelical and who are evangelicals and what do we have by looking at what we have in common is actually a non-evangelical way of describing evangelicals and therefore bound to total misunderstanding. For at the heart of evangelicalism, as the word indicates, is the evangel. The Greek word ruined by English, the Greek word which means gospel, the proclamation of the news. The great evangelical bishop J.C. Ryle described evangelicalism with five leading features. Supremacy of scripture, human sinfulness and corruption, the person and work of Jesus with faith necessary in him, Fourthly, the inward working of the Holy Spirit bringing us to repentance 
And fifthly, that inward working of the Holy Spirit manifested in taking us into holiness. You'll notice that these are slightly different to Bebbington's kind of list of things because these are all theological ideas, applying the gospel to our lives and making us Christians and saving us. He outlined those uh, ideas against their alternatives in quite stark terms in Knots Untied, if you've seen that book. Which brings me back then to our reading of Galatians chapter 1. It's about the unique evangel. Paul was astonished and appalled that the Galatians were so quickly turning aside from the Lord Jesus Christ and turning aside from the gospel, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the points he makes about the gospel are very important to take note of in a post-cultural, post-Christian culture. Uh, let me point five of them to you. Firstly, the gospel is unique. There's only one gospel. There's not different gospels to different people. There's not a, a gospel for Northern Ireland and a gospel for uh, Southern Ireland and there's a gospel for Australia. There's one gospel and only one gospel. And it's not the prosperity gospel. Secondly, the gospel can be distorted and contradicted or perverted, as the NIV puts it there. That is, it, it, it's not, thirdly, infinitely malleable. You've got an idea that can just be changed and added to, subtracted from, modified as different times goes on. That's not possible. It's something that can be distorted. It is pervertible. It is distortable. Neologisms, I've just thought up. Fourthly, the gospel is true independent of the preacher. Even if I, even if an angel should come to you and preach a different gospel, let them be damned. Pretty strong words for a man who believes in hell. Because the gospel is true irrespective of whose mouth it comes out of. And fifthly, the gospel never changes. I preach to you the gospel. Now if I come back to you later with a different gospel, I'm wrong. That's what he's saying, isn't it? Very clearly. So it never changes. This gospel message then is a theological description of what God has done for us in Christ Jesus involving the salvation of mankind. It's about certain facts. Think of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Christ Jesus died. Christ Jesus rose. Facts. But it's about a particular interpretation of those facts. Christ Jesus died for our sins. That's an interpretation of the fact that he died. That is, the gospel has the facts and the interpretation. Very important to understand, my friends, because it even goes further. It gives you the basis of that interpretation. Christ Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. So if you want to understand what it means to die for sins, read the scriptures. So you've got the basis of the interpretation of the facts. That is why you must never interpret the Bible. That's a nonsense. You're interpreting an interpretation. The Bible is the interpretation. The Bible interprets us. We do not interpret the Bible. Because the Bible is God's interpretation of the world and of the life and of the universe. To study the interpretation of the Bible is to study a nonsense. It's to study the human sinfulness seeking to disobey what God has said. Hermeneutics is a ridiculous notion. 
that has only been invented in the last 20th century as a result, the later 20th century, as a result of postmodern atheism. It's a nonsense subject, really. You don't need to interpret the Bible, you need to read it. You need to obey it. That's what it's about. And because it is God's interpretation of you, and of me, and of us, and of Christ, and his death, and his resurrection, and what life is all about. The gospel is God's interpretation of the universe. It's more than a list of doctrines. It's a whole logical unity of these doctrines. It's a mistake to think that there are five or ten fundamental gospel truths and then a whole list of secondary truths and then another list of things that don't matter, things that are indifferent, adiaphora, things that are irrelevant to the gospel. There's nothing irrelevant to the gospel. Nothing is ever irrelevant. Anything can be made into a key gospel issue because anything can become a presenting problem for the gospel. Take circumcision. Circumcision, Paul says, is of no consequence. It counts for nothing. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 19. Galatians chapter 6, verse 15. Circumcision doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're circumcised. It doesn't matter if you're uncircumcised. It's a nothing. However, he also would not allow Titus to be forced into circumcision, he says, for fear of compromising the truth of the gospel. The thing that is of no consequence can compromise the very truth of the gospel. It depends the context in which this no consequence thing is being put. There is no list of things that don't matter. Everything is under the sovereignty of God and anything can be used by sinful people to reject God's sovereign rule in this world. The gospel is the whole counsel of God. But it finds its clearest apostolic expression in recounting the death and resurrection of Jesus and calling upon people to repent and believe in him in order to be saved. And this is what Paul did. Remember he's on uh, in Miletus when he's talking to the Ephesians elders and he describes what he did when he was amongst them. And he says in Acts 20, and I think it's about verse 20, he says that he went from house to house speaking to Jew and to Gentile, because it's the same message to Jew as it is to the Gentile. And what is that message? Repentance towards God, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is the, that's his summary of what his ministry, what his gospel, what his evangelism was all about. And this message is more than human. It's God's word, the living word of God by which God created the world that became flesh and dwelt amongst us, which is sharper than any two-edged sword and to whom we must in the end give account. See, when Paul wrote to the Thessalonians in chapter 2 verse 13 of 1 Thessalonians, he said, we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it actually is, the word of God which is at work in you who believe. See, the reception of the gospel message is a spiritual phenomenon, which is why he thanks God for the way the Thessalonians received the word of God. Secondly, the word of God is in the mouth of a man. 
It's extraordinary, isn't it? That as I speak the gospel, God is speaking the gospel through me. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 to 12, you'll find that the Holy Spirit is the evangelist, using humans to evangelise. 1 Thessalonians 2 reflects that. And thirdly, notice, God's word is active, at work in you who believe. The word of God is not a dead letter. It's not a menu by which you can make your choices in life. The word of God is the living, active power of God at work in this world today and in the lives of Christians, bringing them to salvation and changing the very way in which we live. This Thessalonian acceptance of the gospel is the model of acceptance of the gospel in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, how everybody heard about what they did when the gospel came to them. It's to be believed as God's word. It works in changing our lives. And so evangelicals are those who, having repented because of their belief in God's word, are being transformed by the very word of God as they proclaim it to still other people for their salvation. Thus you can see why we are seen as Christ-centred, cross-centred, for that's obviously the place of salvation, but we're, we're not limited to Christ and the cross, for the whole counsel of God points to Christ and the cross. And thus we teach from Genesis to Revelation the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But tonight I'm speaking on the third topic of my four topics, the death of evangelicalism. For evangelicalism as we know it is under great threat. And death is a pretty harsh word because it's the word of the punishment for sin. The wages of sin is death. We're told on the day of which you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. But most people think that that, that promise, that threat, didn't come true. Because Adam, Eve, they ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they didn't die. That's because we don't understand death. They actually did die that day. You see, the moment that you cut the flowers from your garden in order to put them in a vase, you kill them. The moment you snip the flower from the plant, it's dead. You put them into the vase and they don't look dead. In fact, in the vase, they continue to seem to grow and live. They open up, they show their, their magnificent, brilliant colours, and they, they give off the sweet scent of life. But actually, they're dead. They're just like a 19-year-old, full of life, but dead. If you don't believe me, just wait around for a while and you'll see the blossoms curl up and then fall off and the leaves all curl and discolour and fall off and if you hang around long enough the water just stinks. That stench that only death could have. You don't have to do anything to kill the flowers because you killed them when you took them from the garden. And likewise with a 19 year old just hang around. It's only a matter of time. And the time goes very quickly. 
Uh, someone told me the other day about Billy Graham. He said, I was 17 one day and then I turned around and I was 70. And as someone who's passed that milestone, it feels like that too. And you're only given three score years and ten, four if you're strong. And this announcement of death in Genesis 1 to 3 is reinforced by introducing in chapter 11 the cultures of death in the world after Babel. For humanity, created in the image of God, even after sin and death, still nothing is impossible for us, says God in Genesis 11. And therefore, he divided us by giving us different languages. Languages, of course, are the basic building block of different cultures, whereby we cannot understand each other. For we think in our languages, and as we have different languages, we think differently. And each of our cultures, uh, a culture is a community of people who have a common way of understanding their world reflected in customs and language and education. But all humanity's cultures are expressions of sinfulness. They are all expressions of sinful humanity's attempt to understand the world outside the Garden of Eden, to understand the world in which death dominates, to understand the world when sin and corruption is in the heart of every individual. Each culture of the world is an expression of human sinfulness. The Gospel gives us, though, a new culture, a transcultural understanding of the world. It gives us God's understanding of the world and produces the evangelical culture. For evangelicals don't just preach the word, they also live the word. For they put into practice in every part of life the gospel message that they proclaim. And this means that they become distinctive. Their customs, their habits, their behaviour become distinctive as they live with each other and encourage each other to raise their families as evangelicals. The Bible calls this distinctiveness holiness. The word holy means different. It just means being different. Now, God is different to us in his purity, so we tend to think of the word holy means pure, but it really doesn't. It means being different. And evangelicals, God's people, are called upon to be different. Be holy as I am holy, says God. And Peter picks up that verse from Leviticus in, uh, in his first epistle. It's what Christians should be. As God is holy, so we are to be holy. That is, we're not to be conformed to this present world, but we're to be transformed by the renewal of our minds that comes from the hearing of God's word so we might know what is pure, what is right, what is true. We are to be different in every part of life but in particular in the way in which we fellowship with each other. Church will not be like other gatherings or religious activities, especially religious activities of this world, but are to be quite different to the world's expectations. The last place you should expect Christians to be worldly is in church. Of all places, where we gather only Christians together to hear the word of God, 
we should be holy different distinctive doing things being a people that is just not like the rest of the world so church will not maintain traditions the cultures of our society we will not be overtly religious like the world is overtly religious because the world has religions full of idols bells smells altars priests sacrifices those kinds of things that worldly religion has you shouldn't expect to see here because we are God's people not the world's people the early Christians if you remember were attacked because they had no God they were called atheists because they had no gods because when you went to their churches there were no statues there were no idols there were no gods and what's more they were attacked because they married their brothers and sisters because they treated each other as family and so the difference will be in every area of life we're not to be just pragmatic like the world is pragmatic doing that which 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 succeeds whatever success means doing that which is just chasing money which some churches do we're to be not like the rest of the world morally inclusive whatever you do is okay here we accept everybody doesn't matter how degenerate they are provided they repent and find forgiveness in the death of Jesus but if they're not going to find repentance and forgiveness in the death of Jesus their degeneracy has no place within God's people but in our world moral relativism means inclusiveness with no judgment no repentance no forgiveness necessary we take you as you are whatever you are whoever you are whatever you're doing however you're doing we're non-judgmental like those wicked church people says the world church will be christ-centered gathering of god's saved people to listen again and again to the great message of the gospel word this will not be a culture of death but the culture of life in the context of the world of death surrounded by the cultures of death where, which are ignorant of the salvation that is found in the lord jesus christ but yet my title is the death of evangelicalism for the forces at work in the world today are crushing the life out of evangelicalism satan has from the days of jesus used two main methods to attack the church one is persecution the other is seduction and they often go together you see them both in Revelation chapter 2 and 3 when Jesus stands amongst the seven churches which is a way of saying standing amongst the whole universal church and finds in each of the churches how Satan is seducing how Satan is persecuting and how there are faithful people in the churches even churches that are going astray because of the fear of persecution or because of the power of seduction Excuse me, I wonder if the sound people will turn the sound off for a moment so I can cough. <coughs> Thank you. Terrible thing to do that to a congregation. Um, Broughton Knox coughed into a microphone once, uh, sneezed into a microphone, and uh, one of our friends in England, who I won't mention by name because 
You all know Dick Lucas. <laughs> it was driving along a motorway listening to Broughton on a, on a recording and suddenly this blast came through the whole thing and Dick said he changed three lanes. <laughs> <coughs> Today we see persecution of Christians generally and evangelicals in particular. See how difficult it is to be a Christian in a war zone like the Congo or like, the, like uh, uh, Syria. But how Christian, difficult it is for Christians to live under communism or to live under Islam or Hinduism. I mean, in what we call or what you call the Middle East, it's not east of us, it's west of us. We call it Southwest Asia. But you call it Middle East. Kind of Anglo-centric view of the world. Um, <laughs> Or the kind of persecutions you see in China or parts of India today or North Africa or Egypt or Indonesia or Malaysia or you just go on and on and on where Christians are being persecuted physically, economically. How difficult it would be to be evangelicals when you're oppressed by the institutional church. I a couple of months ago, it was a month or so ago, I was in New Zealand. We were meeting with 30 uh, Anglican ministers who have all now had the process of being dispossessed from their churches because they will not go along with the, with the uh, distortion and perversion of the gospel that is taking place in the Anglican church in New Zealand. And so they're leaving. People have put hundreds of dollars in their lives into building buildings that they're no longer allowed to possess or use for the gospel ministries for which they've been put up because of the institutional church. Uh, I'm going in a week or two of time, I don't, can't remember when, um, two weeks time up to Scotland where I'm going to be ministering up there in the Church of Scotland. Well, it's not in the Church of Scotland. It used to be the Church of Scotland, but they've had to leave the Church of Scotland because of the changes in the, in the theology of the Church of Scotland. People who have faithfully been raised up in the belief of the gospel in the Westminster Confession, they hold firm to the foundation documents, but yet they're no longer welcome in the Church of Scotland. You can see the same thing in America. And the persecution comes from institutional churches, irrespective almost of the brand name that you want to mention, Roman Catholic, Anglican, Presbyterian, Baptist, I don't care. You name the brand name and I can tell you where that institution is persecuting gospel people today around the world. And how difficult it is to preach the gospel when culturalism is sovereign. For then we have the death of absolutes and of truth. You then, because culture is sovereign, there is no right, there is no wrong, there's just your culture. There's no true, there's no false, it's just your culture. There's no punishment, there's no salvation, it's just your culture. It's just your opinion as opposed to my opinion. I feel like a four-footed female pygmy and that's what I am because I feel like it. Maybe I feel like a pygmy rhinoceros. There's all kinds of things like it. If I feel like it, I am it and don't you say that I'm not because that's how I feel. Inside myself, I feel it. And of course, when culturalism is sovereign, then we have the relativism of deconstruction. Words have no meanings other than the meaning you hear 
you, the hero wants to give them. God says one thing, but we know he doesn't mean that thing. He means the opposite, so we don't have to pay attention to what he says because we know that he actually says something completely different. Every reading is an interpretation. There's no right interpretation. There's no, you can't have a comprehension test. Because if you have a comprehension test and the student decides that it's actually on a different subject, well, the student's right, aren't they? You thought that you set a comprehension test on the history of, of Belfast and the student writes back all the answers on the history of cricket. And you say, he's wrong, you haven't understood the questions. He said, well, that's how I understood the questions and who are you, the teacher, to tell me that my understanding is wrong and yours is right? There's no, the author doesn't have control over the meaning. The reader has control over the meaning. I'm the reader and that's what it means to be. All truth is determined then, not by rationality, not by truth, but by feelings. It's how I feel. And I feel very sensitive. <laughs> Culturalism, when it is sovereign, then means we have the inclusive society. Because the only thing that we can agree upon is to have everybody in. Nothing must be said that is divisive. Nothing that would ever exclude anybody. Every child wins a prize. Every child can be Prime Minister. That's why in Australia we change our Prime Ministers regularly. <laughs> Give each child a chance. <laughs> and when cultural sovereignty rules like this, then the dominating censorious elite run the country through their power. They censor in the universities, in the schools, in the media, anything they dislike, any concept, that any person they dislike. Oh, you're a phobia, haven't you? That's a phobia. Uh, yes, yes. It's not you're wrong. You're just phobic. You're just fearful. That's why you're saying what you're saying. You've got a psychological problem that you believe that. You're not wrong, it's just you need a psychiatrist. But you're not wrong. And nothing is to be said that will hurt anybody's feelings. We have little zones around universities where you, you, you can have your feelings cared for. And, and if the lecturer's going to say something that could possibly offend somebody somewhere, they've got to put a little note up saying, this may be offensive. Oh, by the way, folks, tonight this may be offensive. I'll tell you. You mustn't hurt anybody. Tell that to the dentist. <laughs> you see, sometimes it's really good for people to hurt them, isn't it? Like in dentistry, like when your doctor goes. You do it in order to help. But oh, the power, the real power of victim pain today. I'm a victim. You mustn't say that. I feel so hurt. The censorship that is available to people who claim victimhood knows no end. The censorious power of personal hurt. We evangelicals need to learn this technique. Because you see, nobody is as illiberal as a liberal in power. They are the most illiberal people that have ever walked the face of the earth. 
And Satan combines this kind of persecution, oppression, censorship with seduction. I mean, the single biggest seduction our society has faced, our Christian friends have faced, is materialism. It's, it's, the air, it's the air all around about you. You can't even see it. It's everywhere. It's in your mother's milk that you take. It's, it's in, it's, you breathe it. You just don't even know that you are materialists in our society. The pursuit and dissatisfaction of our wealth, our toys, our trips, our comforts, our careers, our children's prosperity. We're too busy for God. We've got too many other things in our bucket list. I mean, I've got to see the Taj Mahal. Life is not life if I haven't seen the Taj Mahal. I've got to stand there and take my own photograph of it. The fact that there's a million photographs on Google that are better than my own is an irrelevance. It's my photo of it. The fact that I've got my thumb across the corner of the lens, that's an irrelevant. It's, it's the Taj Mahal. I was there. I saw it. And it didn't move. It was just there. As if my life will somehow be helped by seeing... I'm sorry for those of you who have been there recently. I hope you enjoyed your trip. You're not going to any more after tonight, are you? Anyway, you've got to see all these things I've got to, I don't have to do any of them. It is a nonsense, the wealth that we have and its distraction from the holiness that we are to live for God and the salvation of other people. So alongside our materialism, our hedonism, our endless pursuit of our pleasures, especially since the sexual revolution of the 60s, the right to be happy is profound in our society. It's a load of nonsense. You haven't got a right to be happy. The aversion of any suffering, any inconvenience, which lies, of course, at the heart of our drug industry, which is everywhere. And alongside this is the consumerism and individualism, the cuts at the heart of Christian sacrifice, of consistent fellowship, of caring for our neighbour, of putting yourself out, of our basic voluntarism upon which evangelical churches and ministries have flourished for centuries. We're too much individuals to do it anymore. We are too consumerist to do it. We'll pay a youth worker to do that rather than actually do it ourselves. These are just the common problems of Western civilization that seduce Christians amongst everybody else to be worldly and in their modern post-Christian pagan culture. But evangelicals are also seduced by our desire for acceptance and respectability. Academic and respectability, acceptance and respectability in the academic world. We've got to have degrees in divinity, but I can assure you, my friends, that degrees in divinities are simply the paving stones to hell. Pagan teachers leading astray young undergraduates, training our ministers to return to preach at best rubbish and most commonly blatant heresy. Our university education in theology is a laughingstock. It is academically, intellectually puerile, and it is Christianly heretical. But we've got to train our ministers. You've got to have a degree in theology. If you haven't got a degree in theology, you've got no right to say anything. I mean, just because you know the Bible doesn't mean you know anything. Have you read the latest? Mercifully, you haven't. 
And then there's the acceptance and respectability we want with our institutions, our, our ecclesiastical institutions, thinking that when we get advancement, when we get preferment, then we'll be able to change things, not realising that it get advancement in preferment in any of the denominations means that you have compromised yourself so much you will not be able to change anything when you get there. Fearful of being excluded from church. Of course, it's happening. It's happening all over the world. It's going to happen here too. I don't want it to. I hope it doesn't. But it's happened everywhere else, so why won't it happen in Belfast? Remember John chapter 12? Yet at the same time, many, even among the leaders, believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they would not confess their faith for fear that they would be put out of the synagogues. For they loved praise from men more than the praise from God. Which in John 12 is very significant to say because back in John 5, Jesus has said, how can you believe if you accept praise from one another yet make no effort to obtain the praise that comes from the only God? If you're worried about what men think, you have no chance of being a servant of Christ, which is where we got to in Galatians 1.10. Jesus warned that they would persecute us, even while they're thinking they're doing the will of God. These are not people who don't think they're doing the will of God. These are not people who don't believe in God. These are people who believe in God and think they're doing the will of God by keeping evangelicals out of pulpits. The sheep in wolf's clothing are all over the land. Bishops, priests and deacons alike. I've used Anglicans and the Church of Ireland as an illustration here, which makes those of you who are Presbyterians and Baptists really happy. But just remember, the Church of England, the Church of Ireland, is the church I choose to belong to. So can you imagine what I think of yours? <laughs> But you see, evangelicals do not want to offend those in authority over us. The gospel is deeply offensive, especially to those in authority over us. Jesus was deeply offensive, especially to those in authority over him. But evangelicals are also seduced by our desire for acceptance and respectability in society and in the media. Forgetting Jesus' words, woe to you when all men speak well of you, for that is how they fathers treated the false prophets. The BBC is never going to like you. The BBC is never going to do the work of evangelism for you. Get over Christendom. It's finished. It's dead. You cannot expect the government to be preaching the gospel for you. You should never have in the first place. But you certainly can't in the future. They will always be critical and negative of you. For many years in Australia, we have the ABC, of course, in many years in Australia, they've been trying to tell me that it's your ABC. And every time they say it, I always come in with, it's not mine. I pay for it in taxes. But that's the end of my association with it. But evangelicals are also seduced by our desire for acceptance and amongst the modern progressives of our society. The homosexual agenda, the feminist agenda, the God 
from whom all patriarchy is named and created, created a binary humanity in order to multiply and fill the earth. Sin rejects the creator and, the cre and his creation. The gospel restores our creation. It's natural that the post-Christian world, having rejected the creator and his creation, is feminist and homosexual. That's what you should expect. Read the second half of Romans 1. But while Satan prosecutes and seduces evangelicals away from preaching and living the gospel world, the way of evangelicals is dying. The way evangelicals is dying is actually by suicide. We have nobody to blame but ourselves as we buckle under persecution and concede to seduction. If we believed our own message, we would know that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So it comes as no surprise. We will take the warning of the Apostle. Let nobody deceive you. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes, and we will therefore not be seduced by these things, because the Apostle warned us of the deceptive character of human sinfulness. We would know that the Pharisees and the Sadducees who rule over our denominations would prefer the traditions of men to the word of God, for that is the character of those in religious authority. But we don't believe and act on the gospel that we're trying to proclaim. We profess we're evangelicals, but we live as liberals. And so, like good little materialists, we choose careers for our children rather than just an honest job, rather than encouraging them in holiness. We want them to get good marks, to get into good courses. And instead of gospel ministry, we want them to climb to the top of their greedy courses. And like good little pagans, we change our churches to reflect the society around about us, to reflect the feminist envy, to reflect the magic, mystical characteristic of music and worship that we can have, to reflect the sacramental idolatry of churches and of pagans. We ignore Paul's instruction to Timothy about what to do in church. Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. Bible reading's getting shorter and shorter in churches. I travel churches now as an itinerant. We don't have two readings, we have one reading, and the one reading is just a few verses. Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching. Well, you've got to have a short sermon. Can't have a long sermonettes, produce Christianettes, that's what we want. To, to preaching and to teaching. Watch your life and doctrine, he goes on to say. Watch them closely, persevere in them. Because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. And in our denominational association of churches, like obedient children, we choose unity over truth. What a wicked alternative that is. Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Obeying the traditions of men rather than the word of God. And in our evangelism, we think we will get a hearing if we're just good people. We think that if we're just good people, we don't need to say anything. People will get converted because we're just so nice. We, we witness by our actions. 
What you witness by your actions is that you're a good person, which doesn't persuade anybody else that they're a sinner and need the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. You haven't even started. We think that if our church is clean, or in some cases messy, then people will be saved. We think that our joining our church is the same as being born again. So we just got to tell people to come to church. We think that if we have the right apologetics, the right answers, the right philosophical put-downs, the right debating technique, that we will... We think that if we're inoffensive and if we're polite, if we have the right kind of music, if we just keep our heads above water and shut up, suddenly all Belfast is going to be saved. Belfast will be saved when we evangelicals tell our fellow citizens that Jesus Christ has died on the cross for the forgiveness of sins and risen again to bring new life. And if you do not repent and believe in him, you will go to hell. Until we're willing to open our mouths and say it, my friends, we cannot expect Belfast to be saved. W.P. Nicholson saved a generation and he sure opened his mouth and he wasn't short on telling them about hell. He doesn't because he was a nice man, polite and friendly, although he was very funny. But the prophetic word of God, the gospel of Jesus, always will divide will always be the sweet aroma of life to those who are being saved and the stench of death to those who are lost. You can't preach the cross of Christ without yourself being crucified, without yourself bearing the cross. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, For we, are always alive, we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Wake up, my friends. Smell the roses of reality. If you have a suicidal wish for death, then follow the pattern of cultural Christianity, because it is dead. Follow the pattern of liberal Christians, for they are dead. Follow the pattern of the ritualists, for they are dead. Their churches are emptying. No one bothers going to them. And why would you bother going to them? Because what they're saying is, what the rest of society says is what we believe. Well, if that's true, why bother going to church? They've got no message. They're dying daily, and frankly, there's no hope of resurrection. And as an evangelical, I'm glad. Because they have been standing in the way of the gospel for generations. So what are the symptoms of their demise and our demise, our suicide? I've got eight quick ones. When everybody's an evangelical, nobody is an evangelical. And at the moment, because evangelical is the only, name, the only game in town, all kinds of people who aren't evangelicals claim to be evangelicals. But they're not, because they don't ever evangelise. When everybody's an evangelical, nobody's in. Number two. When you have no assurance of salvation yourself, you're not an evangelical, because you haven't understood the gospel. And so those who preach the new perspective... They give you no assurance of salvation. They take it away from you. 
Because the new perspective is the old perspective of Roman Catholicism, which hasn't got the Gospel. Thirdly, if you haven't heard about the new perspective, blessed and holy you, you skip that point. Number three, <laughs> when you emphasise particular atonement, without universal atonement, you'll give up preaching the Gospel to the world because Jesus has got nothing to do with the rest of the world, only with the elect. And that stops you evangelising. Number four, when you're flexible about things you should be inflexible, like the truth of the resurrection, and when you're inflexible about things you should be flexible, like what tempo you play the music, you are doomed. But that, of course, is what is so common. Fifthly, when you go to church to experience the supernatural, numinous, the power, the spiritual experience, rather than hear the word of God, you're committing suicide. Sixthly, when denominational acceptance is more important to you than the truth that you preach, you're doomed. Seventhly, when your fear of offending people is greater than your willingness to proclaim the gospel truth, you're doomed. And then lastly, when you're worried about society's acceptance of you rather than your passion for holiness, you're doomed. For we're not to be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of our minds. If holiness is not what drives you, if the desire to be different for God doesn't drive you, if your desire to be like the rest of society drives you, you have no gospel to preach, for you have no life to live. So what's the future of evangelicalism? And you'll be glad to know the fourth point is a short one. The party is not over. The evangelical party, that is though it's getting weaker because of its suicidal tendencies. More and more people are putting on the badge evangelical, which means fewer and fewer people actually are, and the party's getting weaker. Yet it's still the only game in mainstream, evangel uh, mainstream churches. That is, in terms of people, money, missions, ministers, in terms of the future, Evangelicalism is the only real game in town. And when the denominations get rid of their evangelicals, which is what is happening in places like New Zealand and Scotland and the like, they have to sell off their properties to keep themselves open. <laughs> because they don't have any people, they don't have any offices, they don't have any ministers, they don't have... In fact, some of them are closing down altogether. That is really crazy suicidal activity, isn't it? It's the case. And the second point I want to make under the future of evangelicalism is the gospel is never over until the Lord Jesus returns. Because it's true, because Jesus is risen from the dead, because the Spirit is still at work, because forgiveness of sins and repentance is still available, because forgiveness of sins and repentance is still being preached, the gospel is not over. Evangelicalism will never die in that sense. Because, you see, it's God's plan. Look at Luke 24. 
It's God's plan that he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written, the Christ will suffer and rise on the third day, arise from the dead on the third day. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations. That is the plan of God. And just as surely as Christ died and rose again, so shall the gospel of Jesus' death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins be preached until he returns. So evangelicalism won't die. The form of the particular party may, but the essence of what it was all about in the first place will never die until the Lord returns on that last day.